Do you like Baldur's Gate 3? How about just Dungeons and Dragons? Are you ready for more multi-classed Baldur's Gate 3 builds? If any of the above is true, then I think you're going to enjoy this video. Welcome to D4. Hey everybody, so here at D4, we focus on creating characters for our favorite role-playing games. Most of the time, for me, that means Dungeons & Dragons, hence the name D&D Deep Dive D4, 4Ds. Anyway, lately there's been a healthy heaping of Baldur's Gate 3 because it's an awesome game and it's based on the D&D 5th edition rule set. Regardless, I love theorycrafting about character builds. A lot of times I'll even crunch numbers about them, theorycraft about them, not because I want to tell you the right way or the best way to play a character, but to explore one potential way to build a character that is both really fun and also really powerful to play. So if you enjoy creating characters for your favorite role-playing games, almost as much as you enjoy playing the actual game itself, or if you're just looking for tips or ideas on how to build something you're thinking about playing, then welcome home. This is where you belong, and I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for watching. My name's Colby. Really quick, if you'd be interested in either getting a write-up to the builds that I do so that you don't have to go back and re-watch the video or take notes, or just lending a little extra financial support to me and the channel, I'd really appreciate it if you'd consider joining as a channel member. There's a little button down there. For just a couple of bucks a month, you get access to the library of write-ups that I create for each of these builds, and it really goes a long way to helping support me. So huge shout out to my channel members. You guys are fantastic. I couldn't do this without you. And everybody else, thank you as well for being here. Just liking and subscribing and watching and commenting and clicking on the notifications bell. These are great ways to support me too. You don't have to be a channel member. I'm grateful that you're just here. So thank you. So yes, we are still in Baldur's Gate 3 feeding frenzy mode. In case you haven't seen them, yes, I did my first BG3 builds video a few weeks ago. Catch it here if you haven't seen it. And my second one a couple of weeks ago, which you can watch here. It's brought in a ton of new viewers and subscribers. Hi, thanks for coming. I hope you'll watch the other builds that I've done on this channel for Dungeons and Dragons that can more often than not be adapted for BG3. Also, for those of you who have joined the channel recently and are new to Dungeons and Dragons, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about, like, how the game works and all of the rules and things like that, check out my D&D University playlist. I'll link it there. It's a great little intro to the game, whether for you or for somebody you know who you're trying to get into the game. So if you're thinking about leaving the video game world and joining the dark side that is tabletop role-playing, I'd recommend you check those out. Anyway, yes, I love this game. It is so fun. It gives us such a wonderful playground to try out all of these fun and crazy and powerful D&D builds. And also, I want to put this in here at the very beginning, the caveat, right? D&D is complicated. Baldur's Gate 3 is complicated. Sometimes the wiki is not very accurate. Oftentimes the little tooltip explanation you get for a spell or a feat in the game doesn't give you precise information. Sometimes it's downright misleading or wrong. What's more, I'm recording these videos more than a week before I release them typically, so especially in the world of video games, stuff gets patched. Thus, all of those things considered, I'm bound to make some mistakes or forget important details or talk about a mechanic that has now been changed, etc, etc. When I'm presenting these builds, I promise I've done my best to test them as much as I can, but thanks in advance for your understanding if and when I get something wrong, because undoubtedly I will. Okay, no more preamble since I kind of give a mini preamble for each build, right? Let's just jump into Baldur's Gate 3 Character Builds Volume 3. But first, a word from our sponsor, Chepeku. All right, 
If you guys don't know about Chepeku, then where have you been? They are, quite frankly, some of the best TTRPG map makers in the world. To date, they've created over 4,000 hand-drawn maps that you can use in D&D, Pathfinder, or whatever other game you might enjoy playing at your table, and they are gorgeous. They're super high res, with map options for every conceivable environment and game setting, whether you're looking for a classic dungeon crawl or something more offbeat like a kobold brewery or a giant elder brain skull. My favorite thing about their maps though, they are rarely static. They often come with options for different seasons or time of day, weather effects, and a lot of them are even animated. Naturally, their maps all work seamlessly on most virtual tabletops, VTTs, right? Including Alchemy RPG, Roll20, Encounter Plus, Foundry VTT, Fantasy Grounds, and more. But of course, you could also print them out if your table is in person. But this is all assuming, of course, that you become a supporter of theirs on Patreon. So go check out their stuff at chepeku.com right here. And if you like what you see, which I'm confident that you will, then go to their Patreon at patreon.com slash chepeku and join their almost 20,000 other supporters to show them a little love. A few bucks a month gets you access to all of your wildest map dreams. It is such a great deal. So huge thank you to Chepeku. You guys rock. I love your work. And let's jump into the builds. All right, build number one, the God of Thunder. Or it's actually more like lightning. The God of Lightning doesn't have the same ring to it. How about the Wrath of the Storm? Anyway, in the early days of this channel, I used to get a ton of requests from people to do a storm sorcerer mixed with a Tempest Cleric. People wanted to be the master of the storm, and thematically at least, these two subclasses seemed like a match made in heaven. There was only one little problem. In D&D, the storm sorcerer kinda sucks. <laughs> Their abilities are just pretty meh, is all. Of course, it didn't stop me from trying to make the build work anyways. And I think we did a pretty good job with a little creativity and thinking outside of the box. Anyways, naturally, one of my thoughts that I had when realizing that both of these subclasses were going to be in BG3 was, will this combo work any better in Baldur's Gate than it does in 5e? The answer, I'm happy to say, is a resounding yes. So let's build it to find out why. All right, at level one, for our starting class, I think we want to start out as sorcerer with this combo. The main reason is that that sorcerers, unlike clerics, get constitution saving throw proficiency, and that means a big bump to their concentration checks. And especially in BG3, the AI seems to be pretty smart when it comes to targeting low AC party members and casters in general, especially if they're concentrating on a spell. So doing things to help yourself hold on to your concentration is a big deal. As for our starting ability scores, make sure you get a 16 charisma, a 16 constitution, a 14 dexterity, and then a 12 wisdom, I think, at least to give our perception checks and wisdom saves and cleric stuff even a teeny bump. Otherwise, yeah, of course, charisma for sorcerer spellcasting is most important. Constitution, everybody wants that. 14 decks will be good for our deck saves, our initiative rolls, and our armor class until we can get some good heavy armor later on. As for the equipment that we're going to be taking on this character, pretty standard stuff right now anyway at level one. Robes, we're not going to be using weapons on this character, and we don't have any armor proficiency at the moment, though that will change soon. As for our subclass, let me just say, 
While it is true that, like I said, Storm Sorcerer plus Tempest Cleric is a lot better in Baldur's Gate 3 than it is in D&D 5e, it's not actually because Storm Sorcerer is a ton stronger. It's mostly due to other things that we'll get into later. So yes, while it is better in BG3 than 5e, I think you would totally be fine taking Draconic Bloodline instead. You'd actually get a little more damage out of your character going this route if you wanted to. But yeah, Storm Sorcerer is definitely the better pick conceptually, and they do have some nice little benefits to them mechanically as well. So assuming we go Storm Sorcerer, at level 1 we get the Tempestuous Magic feature, which tells us that when we cast a spell of first level or higher, we can use a bonus action to fly for the rest of the turn without taking opportunity attacks. That's cool, useful, and better than 5e's version where you can just fly 10 feet. Here we get our full movement speed in flight, and that's just going to help us get to hard to reach places that 10 feet of movement speed really wouldn't accomplish. As for the spells that we get as a Sorcerer 1, I would take Shocking Grasp as a cantrip, mostly for thematic reasons. It's an okay cantrip, especially if the enemy is wearing metal armor, but it is melee only. I'd grab Thunder Wave because it's on point thematically, and both does some decent AoE damage, but also pushes targets away from you, potentially, which is nice. And then make sure you grab Chromatic Orb which is different in this game than it is in D&D, and we will make some decent use out of it on this character. With Chromatic Orb, when you cast it, you choose what kind of damage the spell does, cold, acid, fire, poison, or yes, thunder, or lightning. Whatever you choose, you usually get not only the damage, which is 2d8 for most versions, as a level 1 spell anyway, but then an extra little something based on the damage type. You cast it, and then it creates a small area of effect of the damage type on the battlefield for a couple of turns that will Will impact enemies who are there or who move into the area. So if you choose fire, then it's going to create a little area of fire on the ground and will make enemies in the area burn for a couple of rounds. Cold will create a little ice sheet that might make them slip, etc. Lightning creates a little lightning area of effect that, again, does a little damage over time. But thunder is the only one that doesn't do anything extra. It just does more damage, an extra d8 of damage per spell level. And maybe I'll just note, this is something that Baldur's Gate is a lot better at than 5e. Making spell damage type do things that you'd kind of expect different damage types to do is a fun addition that I frankly wish we'd see a little bit more of in D&D. But at level 2, I think we start taking our cleric levels now so that we can really increase our burst damage potential with this build. At cleric 1, we get our subclass right off the bat, and yes, of course, we're going with Tempest. We get some decent things from Tempest Cleric right here. First up, we get proficiency with heavy armor and martial weapons, and this is going to do great things for our survivability. So don't forget to put on the best armor that you can and equip a shield as well. And then as a Tempest Cleric, we get Wrath of the Storm. And again, this is a lot better than the 5e version. It says that when we get hit by an attack, we can use our reaction to return 2d8 lightning damage to them, or if they make their saving throw against that lightning damage, it's half of that, but thunder damage, which is kind of cool. The lightning bolt missed them, but they still felt the shock of the thunder that followed, right? Anyway, you can do this actually as often as you'd like, so long as you get hit and you haven't used your reaction, as opposed to wisdom modifier times per day like in D&D. 
as for the spells that we get as a cleric one, just keep in mind that clerics use their wisdom modifier for their spellcasting stat, and our wisdom is going to be way worse than our charisma. So I would plan on taking stuff here that just works without needing like an attack roll or allowing an enemy saving throw. Guidance, probably the best cantrip in the game, utility-wise at least. Bless is one of the best buffs in the game, and again, just works. Healing Word, of course, is one of the best healing spells in game since you can cast it from range and with a bonus action. But there's one other spell that I want you to make sure you grab here, and it's Create Water. Now, most people might see this spell and think, yeah, okay, I mean, maybe if I'm thirsty or like I need to put out a fire. But those of you in the know know where we're going here. See, Larian is the developer of the Divinity Original Sin games, which were great games in their own right, by the way. If you haven't played them, highly recommended. One thing those games were sort of famous for was the way that you could combine spell and environmental effects to do extra stuff. And they've definitely brought a smattering of that with them into BG3 in ways that are cool and fun. So yeah, in Baldur's Gate, you could cast grease, say, and then if you light that grease on fire, whether with a firebolt or flinging a torch into it or whatever, everyone standing in the grease is now burning. Stuff like that. So in BG3, we've got the wet condition. And when creatures are made wet, whether because you threw a bottle of water at them or because you cast, say, create water where they're standing, then until they are dry in a few rounds, they have vulnerability to cold and lightning damage. And for those who don't know, vulnerability means they take double damage from those sources. <laughs> So now we've got a way to instantly make our enemies wet if we're all out of water bottles with this create water spell. But level three is where it gets really juicy because we would be a cleric two and get channel divinity. We get one charge of channel divinity per short rest and can use that charge to turn undead, sure. But more importantly for us, as a Tempest Cleric, we can use Channel Divinity for Destructive Wrath. And this simply tells us that when we deal lightning or thunder damage, we can use Channel Divinity to deal maximum damage instead of rolling the dice. And in case you weren't aware, this tends to be a lot more damage on average, especially when we're dealing double damage against wet targets, right? Right. Don't forget also that thanks to multiclassing with two full spellcasters here, Sorcerer and Cleric, we now have second level spell slots with which to upcast our spells for, in Chromatic Orb's case, more damage. So from this point on, the basic strategy when we really need to blow something up will be this. First, get your target wet. If you've got a water bottle, throw it. If you have some other means, use it. If all else fails, cast Create Water on as many enemies as you can right on round one, and then we'll be blowing them up on round two. But when you're ready, then you're casting Chromatic Orb, picking Lightning as the damage type, and if it hits, do maximum damage with it via Destructive Wrath, which is doubled thanks to the fact that the enemy is wet. If you use a second level spell slot to do this, it should hit for 3d8 damage maxed, so 24 doubled to 48. As a third level character, that is a ton of damage. Granted, it's resource heavy, but man, it is good for turning the tide of a battle in your party's favor when you really need it. But wait, it gets better. Because at level four, we're gonna go back to sorcerer. We want metamagic and sorcery points and better spells. As a sorcerer too, then we start getting one sorcery point per sorcerer level, which we can use to convert into more spell slots 
or enhance our spells via metamagic. At this level, you'll want to make sure and grab Twinned Spell. This tells us that for a number of sorcery points equal to the spell's level that we're casting, we can make a spell that normally only targets one creature to target two. So now we can do 48 damage to two targets potentially on our turn. Almost 100 points of damage as a level 4 character. Nuts. At level 5, we would be a Sorcerer 3, and that means we get more metamagic options, so we can grab Quickened Spell, which lets us cast a spell that normally requires an action as a bonus action instead. So we could, for example, Quicken, Create Water, and then max double damage Chromatic Orb, all on round 1 if we needed to. And once we have more Sorcery Points, we could do that and Twin the Chromatic Orb even. Boom. Boom. We also have 3rd level spell slots now for bigger Chromatic Orb damage, but then we get 2nd level Sorcerer spells. And the only one I'm going to mention here is Shatter. It's an area of effect spell that does Thunder damage. Now, Thunder doesn't do double damage if they're wet, right? That's Lightning or Cold, but is still something that you could max out damage on in an area with our channel divinity, so a good option to have at this early level for multi-target damage. At level 6, we would be a Sorcerer 4, and that means we get our first feat. I'd probably go with Charisma here to bump it to 18, because I don't think you're going to be running into a ton of lightning-resistant enemies, especially at this level, but if you wanted to, yeah, you could take the Elemental Adept feat, which would let your lightning spells, in our case, do a teeny bit more damage on average when you're not maxing them out via Destructive Wrath anyways, right? But more importantly, ignore Lightning Resistance. I think we get a lot more mileage out of just bumping our Charisma score here, but consider Elemental Adept if you find yourself running into a lot of Lightning Resistance for whatever reason. But level 7 is where things get really good, because that means third level spells, and that means Lightning Bolt. And the Lightning Bolt does 8d6 lightning damage to multiple enemies in a line. Now, you might not be able to get more than one or two enemies with it, but even for single target damage, it outshines Chromatic Orb, unless you're twinning Chromatic Orb. But if you're twinning it, hopefully you could position yourself in such a way that you could hit the two enemies, or maybe more, with your Lightning Bolt, right? In which case, it's better and saves you sorcery points. Anyways, at this level, if you upcast the Lightning Bolt to use the single 4th level spell slot that you've got, thanks to multiclassing, and you maxed out that Lightning Bolt's damage with Channel Divinity, and the enemies were wet, each enemy hit by it would take 108 damage if they failed their saving throw. <laughs> That is so awesome. And I mean, half damage on a successful save is still a ton of damage. And sure, if they were wet already, you could quicken Lightning Bolt and cast it twice on your turn. And okay, fine, for that matter, we could take haste at this level and be concentrating on it, meaning three Lightning Bolts on our turn, once we had enough spell slots to do that anyway, right? So from levels eight on for this build, I would just go Sorcerer to get more Sorcery Points, more and higher spell slots for your feats obviously bump charisma and or you know consider elemental adept alternatively you could take a couple levels of fighter for action surge and get even more burst damage though honestly that kind of feels like overkill to me on this build it is so good in fact i just respect my own party's mage with this build last night and had so much fun with it i think i'm gonna stick with it for a while time for build number two the ultimate ranged weapon user so between the nine builds that i've done so far on my first two baldur's gate 3 videos i have yet to do a ranged weapon using character they're all melee and spellcasters 
What gives? I don't know, honestly. There's just something about me that favors melee characters. I like to get all up in my enemy's business, I guess. I like living dangerously. High risk, high reward. Sometimes just standing far away and shooting stuff feels a little boring to me. A little easy. But I mean, hey, bow users can be cool and fun too. And sometimes you just really want to channel your inner Legolas, right? But the truth cannot be denied. Especially in Baldur's Gate 3, I think ranged weapon users are among, if not the most powerful weapon using characters in the game. Not only because it is usually easier for them to hit their targets consistently without having to dash and jump all over the battlefield, nor because it's usually easier for them to stay alive, since they can keep their enemies at bay, though both of those things do contribute to their power. The main reason that ranged weapon users fare so well here is because of four things. One, hand crossbows. Two, the sharpshooter feat. Three, the fact that you can get a bonus to your hit chance if you get the high ground on an enemy, something that doesn't exist in D&D. And four, the way Larian at the moment has kind of broken the way some things work in their game, at least at the time that I'm recording this. So let's jump into the nitty gritty. At level one for our ranged weapon user, I think we've got two routes that we can go for our main class, and both would work well. Of course, you could go ranger. You're a ranged weapon user. Most people probably think ranger there, right? Well, I mean, they have the important fighting style, and they get spells, which could help us out quite a bit, no question. Especially in the utility and support categories. If you wanted to do a ranger on this build, go for it no regrets. I'd probably go Gloomstalker, but I think the fighter is just a little more powerful for our purposes. We'll get into why a little bit later. Assuming we go fighter, for ability scores make sure you take a 16 dexterity, a 16 constitution, a 14 wisdom. Pretty self-explanatory as to why I think, but let me know if you have questions. As for equipment, we're going to want to start with the best medium armor we can get for now, and then as soon as we can, we'll want to get two hand crossbows. You'll have to do a little digging check the vendors, you can probably google like where to find hand crossbows in BG3 and get some great tips. But here's why you want to. You see, unlike in D&D, ranged weapons don't ever have like the loading or ammunition properties which require that you have a free hand or say that you can only take one attack with them on a turn, etc. What that ends up meaning is that yes, you can dual wield hand crossbows and fire them both as often as you have resources to fire them on your turn. And yes, since hand crossbows are light weapons, that means you can use them for two weapon fighting, which is what lets us wield two weapons, one in each hand, and make an attack with the offhand weapon as a bonus action, right? So yeah, as soon as we get them, we can start making two hand crossbow attacks every turn, one with our action, one with our bonus action. What's more, at the time of recording anyways, it's broken in that it's still applying your dexterity modifier for damage on that offhand attack, even if you don't have the two weapon fighting style, which according to the rules it shouldn't do. I'm sure it'll get patched eventually, maybe it already has been by the time this video comes out. But if not, it's really powerful, and it only gets better. Anyway, as a fighter at level 1 we get second wind for a nice little self heal, and then we get a fighting style, and yeah, we get access to the best fighting style in the game, archery. Archery is so good because it gives you a plus 2 to hit with ranged weapons, as opposed to other fighting styles which just add a little damage to the hit you make. In this game, Increasing your chance to hit by two is way stronger than increasing the damage you do when you hit 
by two, thanks to all the ways we already have to add damage to our hits, right? So at level two, we're gonna start taking rogue levels for the same reasons that we left Ranger behind early on in the blender two weapon using melee build that I did for the last BG3 video, which we'll get into in a second. And yes, you could totally start rogue with this build, if you wanted to get a jump on your scouty lockpicky skills instead of getting the fighting style and armor proficiencies from fighter. But at Rogue One, we get expertise, which lets us double our proficiency bonus in two skills. And as usual, I'd take perception and sleight of hand personally, if we wanted to be the best rogue we could be. And then we get sneak attack here as well, which tells us that when we make an attack with advantage or against an enemy that's standing within five feet of an ally of ours, and we're making that that attack with either a ranged or a finesse weapon, then once on a turn we can do an extra d6 of damage that will scale with rogue levels. At level 3 we would be a rogue 2 and that means we get cunning action which, which lets us dash, disengage, or hide as a bonus action, always useful. At level 4 we'd be a rogue 3 and that means we get our rogue subclass and we are taking thief of course, until they nerf it, because thief gives us fast hands and that lets us get two bonus actions on our turn every turn, which is a little broken. So now we can make two offhand attacks with our second hand crossbow every single turn for three total attacks per turn as early as level four. Boy, howdy. I mean, we could have done it at level three, I guess, if we just went straight rogue. Don't forget that sneak attack does scale up to 2d6 now once per turn, which is a nice little bump. But then at level five, though I really want to get to extra attack and other goodies in fighter, I think we'd be remiss not to take rogue four here so that we can get a feat because we really, really want sharpshooter. This is one of the most powerful feats in the game, letting us, if we so choose, take a minus five to hit penalty on attacks with ranged weapons to do an extra 10 damage if we hit. And this is a perfect example of why plus two to hit is so much better than plus two to damage when it comes to fighting styles, right? Oh, also, the feat doesn't impose a penalty to our hit chance when we're attacking from low ground. Also, at the time of this recording, for some reason, using sharpshooter, the attacks that you make with your offhand as a bonus action, add the 10 to damage, but don't suffer the minus five to hit. So yeah, pretty busted. And again, I really hope that by the time this video comes out, that's already been patched. Anyway, at level six, with that feat secured, yes, it's time to get back to fighter levels, which means we would be a fighter two and we get action surge so that once per short rest, we can take two actions on our turn instead of one to just keep sticking pins in our pin cushion of an enemy. At level seven, we would be a fighter three and that means we get our fighter subclass and we are gonna go with Battlemaster for one main reason. So Battlemasters get four superiority dice per short rest they're D8s and they can be used typically to enhance our attacks or aid an ally in some way via maneuvers. I've said this before, think of those superiority dice like spell slots, but for fighters and they reset on a short rest. But we get to choose three maneuvers from a nice list and I wanna highlight two. First up, precision attack. This is actually worse in BG3 than it is in D&D because in D&D you can wait until after you roll your attack to decide to use the precision attack maneuver and spend that superiority die. You roll it and then you add the total that you rolled on that D8 
to your hit chance, potentially turning a miss into a hit, right? In Baldur's Gate, you have to decide before you attack if you want to use precision attack, meaning that you might use the superiority die, but then you end up rolling high and you didn't even need it, so it was wasted. That's something I would love to see patched. I'd still probably take it here because sometimes you just really, really need to make sure that your attack lands, right? More importantly though, we want trip attack. This is my favorite maneuver. It tells us that when we hit with a weapon attack, we can add a superiority die in damage and then force the enemy to make a strength saving throw or be knocked prone. Now, prone. In D&D, if an enemy is prone, you get advantage on attacks against them if you're within five feet of them when you attack them. In Baldur's Gate though, there's one teensy weensy difference. And it's that you have advantage when you attack them from within 10 feet. Why is that such a big deal? Because in case you didn't know or forgot, in both D&D and BG3, if you make a ranged attack against an enemy within five feet, you have disadvantage. So that disadvantage plus the advantage that you got from them being prone would cancel each other out, right? But in BG3, you should be able to shoot them with a trip attack, it doesn't have to be a melee weapon attack, it works on ranged, knock them prone, and then run up to within six to nine feet of them and just fill them full of lead while they're down. And yeah, having advantage is such a big deal in this game, especially when we're taking a minus five to hit penalty, even with our plus two to hit from archery fighting style. And this is really the main reason I wanted to go fighter over ranger. Now, keep in mind, you can toggle your uh, sharpshooter feet on and off. You go into the, uh, I think it's the passives tab, right? Under your hotbar. And so if you're up against a pretty hard to hit enemy, take advantage of that. And the best tactic might be to make your first trip attack attack on your turn with sharpshooter turned off just to make sure that it hits, hopefully knock them prone, and then toggle it back on, run up to them. Now you have advantage. Flip, flip, flip. Also, you might not love the idea of having to be in kind of like a close to mid-range to be as effective as possible here. You want to be a long-range weapon user, right? But it will make your numbers a lot better going this route if you don't have another way to get advantage anyways. All right, from this point in the build, starting at level eight, I would take fighter to level six, so up until character level 10, right? That's gonna get us extra attack for more hand crossbow goodness, as well as two feats, one at four, and unique to fighters, one at six, which would let us cap our dexterity score at 20. From there, levels 11 and 12, I think I'd finish the build in Rogue for a little more sneak attack, uncanny dodge, and another round of expertise, or maybe just go Rogue 5, then Fighter 7, so that you could get another superiority die per short rest. The reality with this build is that until Larian balances things, you honestly might play this for a while and then respec out of it because it feels like you've just put the game in easy mode. I would highly recommend bumping the difficulty up to tactical if you're not already there, if you're gonna use this build. All right, build number three, the control freak. So I've said this many times on my channel in the past, but I think to date, the strongest character I've ever built for Dungeons and Dragons was called, yes, the control freak. And they did zero damage. In reality, locking down enemies on the battlefield will generally do more to trivialize combat encounters for your party than doing a little more damage on your character because controlling action economy, how many things the enemy can do versus how many things you can do, and keeping it in your favor tends to be like the number one key to victory in this game. That said, 
the more I play BG3, the more I realize that, generally speaking, Larian seemed to be really interested in closing the caster-martial divide that exists in D&D trying to narrow that gap a little bit. Most D&D vets would argue that casters are just a lot more powerful than non-casters in that game. The main reason is not because of the fireball spell either. As often as not, it's because of the web spell and hypnotic pattern and fear and the holy of holies wall of force. Sure, Barbarians can hit hard, paladins can smite, but casters can teleport all over the battlefield, shut down half of the enemies in the fight or more until they're ready to deal with them, summon armies of creatures to fight and die for them, and in the case of things like the mass suggestion spell, just win the fight before it even begins. So yeah, generally speaking, despite cool and powerful things like doing double lightning damage to wet enemies, casters in Baldur's Gate feel a lot less powerful to me than they do in 5e. And let me be clear, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing, but especially when it comes to control spells, casters feel weaker to me in this game. And maybe it's because enemies seem to more regularly make their saving throws here than they do in D&D. Maybe Larian just wanted there to be more parity between marshals and casters. Or maybe they just thought that locking enemies down for an entire combat encounter wasn't very fun or didn't seem very fair. All of that said, it's not going to stop me from trying to build the most effective control caster that I can because Playing a battlefield controller can be really fun, right? And it can still be quite powerful, I think, even if it's a little less potent in this game. And so, I wanted to try my hand at building one. Let's do it. At level one, okay, we're starting off as a fighter again. <laughs> Are you sick of that yet? I don't think this is absolutely necessary, but for this character, perhaps more than any I've done yet, holding on to concentration will be really, really important. So I want the benefit from constitution saving throw proficiency. You could also start sorcerer for constitution saving throw proficiency. And actually, sorcerers could make decent controllers as well, though we're gonna take a different route. I'll talk about it at the end of the build. I prefer fighter for the better defense thanks to shields, armor, and a fighting style as opposed to sorcerer, personally. For our starting ability scores, make sure you get a 16 intelligence, a 16 constitution, and a 14 dexterity for armor class purposes, among others. As for equipment, yeah, start with the best medium armor you can get, eventually moving on to heavy armor when you can find some good plate. Grab a shield and then just a ranged weapon for now. But then, yeah, fighter one, you get second wind for that self-heal, and then a fighting style, and I would take defense on this character to just bump our armor class by one. We're not planning on using weapons from level two on. So yeah, at level two, we're gonna start taking wizard levels. Finally, a wizard build. Generally thought of as one of, if not the strongest class in D&D. Why did it take me so long to make a wizard character? Because they don't have blade singers, dang it. <laughs> no, wizards are great. I think they are stronger in D&D than Baldur's Gate because there's maybe more discrepancy between their spell list and everyone else's in D&D. Wizards get access to significantly more spells in 5e, and that is less the case in Baldur's Gate. Regardless, wizards are still very strong, and especially for our control freak selves. So as a wizard one, we get arcane recovery. This lets us use a bonus action once per day to recover spent spell slots, always handy. And then we get 
spells, of course, and I would take Ray of Frost for a cantrip, as that both does damage, it's only a teeny bit less than Firebolt, and also slows the enemy, which is a nice soft control there. Sometimes that'll be enough to force them to have to dash on their turn instead of make attacks, right? Sleep is a pretty good spell at early levels, though less potent than in D&D, I feel like, since it's easier for enemies in BG3 to wake their friends up here. Tasha's Hideous Laughter, though, is a very potent control option knocks an enemy prone if they fail their save against it and it just keeps them from getting up or doing anything for an entire minute. It's a serious lockdown spell on a single enemy. At level 3 we'd be a wizard 2 and that means we get our wizard subclass and we are going to go with enchantment. Enchantment? Enchantment. Hmm, Dragon Age. Yes, enchanter wizards are my favorite controllers for one main reason, and that's for the hypnotic gaze ability that they get at this level. With hypnotic gaze, you use your action to totally incapacitate a single enemy. It only lasts for two rounds, but you can use your action every round to maintain the hypnosis. So now, yes, you could be totally locking down two enemies on the battlefield. One with your concentration, thanks to Tasha's hideous laughter, and one with this, which does not require our concentration. Now, unfortunately, it is a lot weaker in BG3 than D&D because you can only use Hypnotic Gaze on one target per long rest. Again, I'm not really sure why Larian hates control so much, but whatever. It's still a strong feature, even if it just means using your action every single turn to keep an enemy hypnotized. But yeah, due to the once per long rest limit, you might find yourself taking more long rests on this character than other builds, I guess. At level four, we would be a wizard three, and that means we get second level wizard spells. For control purposes, I would focus on web, which can restrain multiple enemies on the battlefield. They can still do things when they're restrained, but attacks that they make are at disadvantage and attacks against them are made with advantage, and they can't move until they get out of the web, so depending on the situation, probably a better control option for our concentration here than Hideous Laughter if you could get two or more enemies in that web. On the other hand, if you're fighting humanoids, you've got Hold Person, which is better single target control than Tasha's, because it will paralyze an enemy, meaning that they can't do anything and all attacks against them not only have advantage, but are automatic critical hits if they land, so long as the attack is made from within 10 feet. Very strong. Crown of Madness, worth considering. It's different than in D&D and just makes one enemy attack the nearest creature to them every turn, whether that creature is friend or foe. So getting your enemy to not only be locked down, but actually be working for you can be really good if you can hit the right enemy with it, right? At level five, we would be a wizard four, and that means we get a feat and we 100% want to increase our intelligence here. Pretty much all of our control is going to give enemies a chance to save against our DC, our difficulty check. And that is going to be higher and thus enemies will have a lower chance of succeeding against it when we raise our intelligence so prioritize that for sure at level six we would be a wizard five and that means we get third level spells and third level spells are like the promised land of control options but again they're generally a lot weaker in BG3. I'm going to focus on three. Hypnotic Pattern hypnotizes multiple enemies in an area similar to your hypnotic gaze, keeping them from doing anything. Their allies can shake them out of it though by taking the help action or shoving them. And if the enemy takes damage, it breaks as well. But worst of all, it only lasts for two rounds. Two. Yikes. I mean, 
sometimes, sure, that might be all you need to turn the tide of the battle in your favor, but that is significantly worse than the 10 turns it lasts in 5e, right? And then we've got the other darling of control freaks, the fear spell. The spell description currently in the game is totally misleading. It says that enemies affected by it become easier to hit and can't move. Neither of those things are true. In reality, they have to run away and do so, which is great, and then they can't take any other actions, which is also great. They also drop whatever they're holding. They aren't easier to hit, however, but also if they end their turn out of line of sight of you, then they can save against the spell again, but not otherwise. I think in BG3 especially, this is a better spell for control purposes than Hypnotic Pattern. If for no other reason than because if an enemy is spending two turns running away from you, it's often taking two more turns to get back into range of you. Because yeah, it too only lasts two turns instead of ten, but you tend to get more effective time of an enemy not doing anything valuable on the battlefield with it, right? Importantly, the area of effect of fear is a cone rather than a sphere. So it does mean that it will probably be harder to hit all of the enemies that you want to when compared to hypnotic patterns, so that's going to be a big consideration here. And so, all things considered, I think that the best control spell in this game at level 3 is probably neither of those two, but instead slow. First and foremost because slow, for whatever reason, does last 10 rounds just like in D&D. But also with slow, you can choose up to 6 enemies to cast it on, there's no area of effect, you just bing 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 bing, so it's easier to get more of them. And if they fail their saving throw against it, it lowers their move speed by half, it lowers their armor class by 2, and their deck saves by two, and then forces them to choose between an action or a bonus action, not both, and even if they have extra attack, they can only make one attack, they can't take reactions. Sure, it's a softer control spell than Hypnotic Pattern or Fear, because it still allows enemies to do some things, right? But it debuffs them so hard, and you're more reliably going to be able to get it on more enemies, and it lasts a lot longer, that it's going to do more generally, in most cases, I think, to help your party win the fight than either Hypnotic Gaze or Fear. There will be exceptions to this, of course, but yeah, I think my go-to play here for this Control Freak would be cast Slow on round one, and then pick a target who maybe made their saving throw and just lock them down with Hypnotic Gaze while your party very easily cleans up the rest of the enemies. At level seven, I think I would go to Fighter 2 here. Yeah, this means no 6 level spells by end game, right? But it does let us get Action Surge, and so would be worth it. I think. Taking two actions once per short rest so that we could cast our control spell and hypnotic gaze an enemy all on round one is just incredibly powerful. If you went this route, sure, you could respec when you hit level 11 to be a full wizard if you wanted to grab those six level spells, but at least between now and then I think I'd go this route once we had third level spells personally. From levels 8 on though, yeah, I'd go back to wizard. Be sure to bump intelligence with your next feat to cap it at 20 and then pick up Polymorph, Banishment, and Confusion, I think, maybe, for 4th level spells. All good control options. Dominate Person, Hold Monster, and Wall of Stone for our 5th level spell slots would probably be the go-to. Alas, no Wall of Force. But all of these things are going to give you so much fantastic control potential on this character. Now, as I said at the beginning of the build, a mostly sorcerer character would also make a really strong controller. You'd lose Hypnotic Gaze, right, but you pick up Metamagic. This would mean that you could grab not only Quickened and Twin Spell, but Heightened Spell gives enemies disadvantage on their first saving throw against the spell that you're using metamagic on, and that's really going to help those control spells stick a lot more reliably, right? 
extend spell will also double the duration of those short duration control spells that I've been whining about, making them more valuable. But sorcerers don't get access to Tasha's Hideous Laughter, which is really strong, especially early game. So yeah, there's pros and cons to each. I like Enchantment Wizard a little bit better personally, but maybe only just. And last but not least today, build number four, the Cheese Grater. One of my very favorite things to do with D&D characters is find fun and powerful ways to take advantage of forced movement. There are a lot of spells and abilities that will do damage to enemies if they get moved into or through things, usually spells, but not always. And yeah, in BG3, there tends to be a lot more chasms and cliffs and lava than I tend to run into at my D&D table anyway. So pushing bad guys is really strong in BG3. But yeah, I think the most potent D&D build in this vein that I ever did was the Sorlock Cheese Grater from a couple of years ago. I don't think I have any more cards to link to it, but that's what the thumbnail looks like. But if we wanted to recreate the concept for BG3, we've got to do it a bit differently, namely by getting some Druid levels. But the nice thing about getting Druid levels is that we pick up some additional survivability, support, and utility. So I think it works well to make a character this way who is versatile, incredibly powerful, and above all, fun. So at level one, to truly grate the cheese that is our enemy as effectively as possible, we want to start Warlock with this character, I think. For your ability scores, make sure that you have a 16 in Charisma, a 16 in Constitution, and a 14 Dexterity with the 12 Wisdom for saving throws and to increase our Druid effectiveness a little bit. For starting equipment, we're going to be a full spellcaster on this character. No worries about specific weapons or anything like that, so just get the best armor that you can. And then at level 1, Warlocks get their subclass. And any subclass I think would really work, but my favorite for this build is probably the Great Old One. At level one, Great Old One Warlocks, or Gulaks as we affectionately call them, get Mortal Reminder, which says that when we get a critical hit on an enemy, then they and any nearby enemies are frightened until the end of their next turn, meaning they have disadvantage on attacks and ability checks and can't move. Very strong debuff. Best part is they don't get to save against that frightened condition. If you crit, they're frightened. As for the spells that we get at Warlock 1, we want Eldritch Blast first and foremost, and I'd probably grab Armor of Agathis for a little extra survivability primarily, and sure, go ahead and use Hex until you've got something better to concentrate on for a little bit of extra damage on those Eldritch Blasts that you're going to be making. At level 2, Warlocks get Eldritch Invocations, and there are two more important than anything for us. Agonizing Blast, which adds our Charisma modifier to each attack of our Eldritch Blast, and Again, later on when Eldritch Blast scales and starts hitting with two and three beams, we're going to add our Charisma modifier to each one of those beams, right? But then also Repelling Blast, which pushes our enemy 10 feet away from us when we hit them with Eldritch Blast. Now, one thing to note, in D&D, you can push an enemy up to 10 feet every time you hit them with a beam of Eldritch Blast. So after level five, when Eldritch Blast fires twice, for example, you could potentially push them 20 feet with this invocation. Thus far, in my own testing, I've only seen them be moved 10 feet total, regardless of whether they got hit with one or multiple blasts. Let me know if you've seen otherwise. It's kind of a bummer, but it's still a nice way to move your enemies around regardless. At level three, we could start druid levels now to let us start grading the cheese a little sooner, but I want at least one more level of warlock for two primary reasons. First, to get a packed boon. Of the three options available to us, 
we really want to go Pact of the Tome with this build. In D&D, that means we get to choose some non-warlock cantrips. In Baldur's Gate 3, we just straight up get Guidance, Vicious Mockery, and Thorn Whip. All of these are pretty nice cantrips, actually, but Thorn Whip is the most important one for this build. With Thorn Whip, you make a spell attack against an enemy, and if you hit, you pull them 10 feet closer to you. This is okay by itself, but it gets really good when you couple it with a spell like Cloud of Daggers, which we can get now with second level Warlock spells. So Cloud of Daggers used to have a reputation for being a pretty weak spell in D&D. It's a pretty small area of effect, you can't move it once you've cast it, but I think a lot of people are catching on to just how good it is, and in BG3, it's even better. See, in D&D, there are a ton of spells like Cloud of Daggers with wording that's kind of funky. Basically, it doesn't actually damage an enemy when you cast it, even if they're in the area. It only does damage when the enemy starts their turn in the area or moves into the area of the spell. In BG3, it's a lot less convoluted. If you cast a spell on top of the enemy, they take the damage immediately and, again, on their turn. So you can always get at least two instances of the damage on potentially multiple enemies, making it a really strong spell, especially for tightly clustered fights. Better yet, there's no saving throw against it, they just take the damage, period. But for characters like us, who can push and now pull enemies around on the battlefield, it's even better. I've had a lot of fun in the game already putting Cloud of Daggers in just the right spot and then either pulling or pushing enemies into it, depending on where they're standing. It is so satisfying to just yank them into that blender and watch them get all ground up. Ugh, that sounded really macabre. <laughs> anyway, at level four, though I want to get that feat, sure, let's start taking druid levels here to get to the cheese grading. At druid one, we get some spells and I just focus on support stuff that just works since our wisdom score isn't great and never will be. Goodberry, though nerfed compared to 5e, is still a slightly more efficient heal generally than cure wounds anyways. And healing word is of course great. You might be wondering why we went Pact of the Tome for Thorn Whip since we can just get it as a druid, right? Well, remember, if we used Thorn Whip as a druid spell, it would use our Wisdom modifier to hit. But getting it with Pact of the Tome means we get to use our Charisma modifier, right? Which means we'll be hitting and dragging with it a lot more reliably. At level 5, we would be a druid 2, and that means we get our druid subclass. And I think I would go Circle of Spores here. It pairs wonderfully, I think, with a warlock thematically, but it also gives us a little bit of a mechanical tactical boost. Admittedly, the benefits are fairly small. If you feel really strongly about going land druid for the expanded spell list and spell slot recovery, go ahead. But moon druid is probably out because we're not planning on being in beast mode with this build. All right, so as a spores druid, first up we get halo of spores, which basically does a little damage with our reaction when an enemy's close to us. It's nothing to write home about, but we won't have a super reliable use of our reaction action otherwise, so sure, a little bit more damage. Symbiotic Entity is the real reason that we're here. This tells us that we can use a use of our Wild Shape, and remember, we get Wild Shape here too, which we can use twice per short rest to turn into some cool beasts. But as a Spores Druid, we could use a Charge of Wild Shape to instead use Symbiotic Entity, which gives us some temporary hit points equal to four times our Druid level, so eight right now, yeah. And then while we have at least one of those temporary hit points on us, Halo of Spores does double damage, and then our melee weapon attacks do extra damage. But we're not using melee weapons. So yeah, we're mostly here for the temporary hit points. 
like I said, subclass isn't doing a ton for us, but a little bit of damage, a little bit of survivability, not really the main reason we went Druid. Don't forget, at character level 5, Eldritch Blast is going to be firing two beams now, that's important. But then at level 6, we would be a Druid 3, and that means we get second level spells, and this is the main reason we went Druid, because now we can grab, yes, Spike Growth. This is such a fun spell. In BG3, it only covers a 20-foot diameter circle of ground in Thorny Spikes, as opposed to 5e, where it's a 20-foot radius. So twice the area, right? I imagine that it can be difficult in a video game to make a spell's area of effect that big. Distances and areas are generally a lot smaller in BG3 than they are in 5e. There's only so much monitor real estate that you want to take up, right? Anyway, with spike growth, when a creature moves through the spikes, they take 2d4 damage every 5 feet they move. Additionally, and again, this is different than in 5e, they take that damage when you first cast the spell if they're standing in the area. Super nice. In my own testing, the AI seems really reluctant to walk through this area, even if it means wasting a turn for them to have to skirt around it. So already it's doing work, but the best part of the spell, of course, is that the enemies take this damage whether they move of their own free will and choice or whether they are forcibly moved through it. And just like with Cloud of Daggers, the damage here is automatic, no saving throw. And we've got some really nice tools to force their movement through spike growth, right? Whether we're pulling them with Thorn Whip if they're on the far side of the spikes or pushing them through it with Eldritch Blast if they're on the near side. Great that cheese. <laughs> At level 7, I would go Warlock 4 to get a feat, finally, so that we could bump our Charisma to 18, which is the most important thing for our damage. And for that same reason, at level 8, I would go Druid 4, so that we could cap our Charisma at 20, as well as pick up some more temporary hit points from Spores Druid, right? At levels 9 and 10, I'm probably going with a couple levels of Fighter. We get better armor, the defensive fighting style, and best of all, Action Surge. I know, I know, it probably feels overused, but how great would it be to throw down spike growth and push or pull an enemy through it on the same turn. Or better yet, throw down spike growth on round one and then on round two, pull an enemy into it and push them back through it all on the same turn thanks to action surge. Answer? So great. And yeah, if you're gonna do this and take some fighter levels, I'd probably respec so that I could be a fighter one for that constitution and concentration, saving throw proficiency, and heavy armor proficiency, right? For the last two levels of the build, I'd either go fighter four for a fighter subclass, maybe just champion for extra crit range, which yes, would apply to Eldritch Blast and Thorn Whip. We'd also get another feat with fighter four, or maybe just go warlock six for third level spells and more invocations. As well as the Entropic Ward feature, from Great Old One Warlocks, which is actually the main reason I wanted to go Gulak in the first place. It's pretty nice. It lets us use our reaction to impose disadvantage on an attack made against us. And then if the attack misses, we have advantage on our next attack. So just really ensuring that our Eldritch Blast or Thorn Whip land, right? It's probably the route I would go. But anyway, those are the builds for the week. I hope you guys enjoyed them. I hope you have fun playing with them in your game. I hope you know I love you guys. Thank you so much for all that you do for me, for this channel. I hope that you have a great day and a fantastic week. And if you don't, well, I hope you hang in there. I hope that you'll be kind and stay safe and that I see you again very soon. But until then, take care. I don't know what the world may need, but a V8 engine's a good start for me. Think I'll drive to find a place to be surly. 
Cause what the world needs now is some true words of wisdom like la 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 And what the world needs now is another folk singer like I need a hole in my head <laughs> Man, I like folk singers. Anybody else go through a, an angsty period in their teens? I mean, that's probably a silly question for anyone who's been a teenager, right? Cracker, band out of the 90s. Really good fix when you're feeling just angsty. Well, don't even say that. Don't say that. Lightning does a similar area of effect. Lightning does a similar area of effect. <laughs> wow. Let's make sure, actually, that that works like I think it does. And sometimes you just really want to channel your inner... And sometimes you just really want to channel your inner... And sometimes you just really want to channel your inner... Channer? <laughs> it hurts, mama. Don't even say that. Yeah, I hit 100k. I mean, that's kind of old news probably by the time this airs, but it's very recent news when I'm recording this. So amazing. Thank you all for helping me get here. It's been such a privilege and a treat. And yeah, my very sweet uh, wife bought me this little shirt to celebrate, though somebody pointed out it just kind of looks like, look, like, look at my boobies. <laughs> Oh, shoot.